Hey all, before we get to the show, we want to ask you a quick favor. As we begin production on season two, we want to know what you like about the show, what you think we could do better, and what you would like to see in the future. So if you have about five minutes, help us out by taking a short anonymous survey on the contact us page at travelinggeologist.com. We would really appreciate it. Okay, here's the show. Well, Wagner made some mistakes. For instance, he noticed that the ice ages came down to about the same latitudes in Europe and North America, and that has nothing to do with continental drift. And he also made some measurements of how fast things were moving. I mean, tried to make the first measurements, and he got them off by several orders of magnitude. So there were enough things to give people doubts. Actually, I think the biggest trouble was that we didn't have a mechanism. We didn't understand how it could be. Because we say the continents were together and then they pulled apart, but th now there's an ocean in there and it has hard rocks in it. And it was just really hard to imagine how the continents could kind of plow through that solid rock. So I think it was, it was quite legitimate. If you don't have a, an idea, even if the idea turns out to be wrong, if you, don't, if you don't have an idea of how something could work, then you, um, it's really hard to buy into it. And so we really needed seafloor spreading. Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. In this podcast, we tell the amazing stories of geological expeditions of yore. As cliche as Newton's axiom, standing on the shoulders of giants has become, for geologists, this is especially true. Whether it be the orogenic history responsible for James Hutton's famous unconformity at Sicker Point, or Chaim Ganser's Himalayan expeditions disguised as a Buddhist pilgrim, it is upon their shoulders that we stand to uncover the geologic mysteries around the planet. We will explore the stories of intrepid men and women whose adventures and discoveries put humanity on a course of greater understanding of how our planet works and how the geologic past has shaped our present. Today we have Michaela Moore and Gillian Ivey, two fellow geologists from Ontario, Canada, who are going to share with us the inspiring life of Tanya Atwater, a marine geophysicist who greatly influenced the world of plate tectonics in this episode of Geological Expeditions of Yore. Take it away, Michaela and Gillian. Hi everyone, my name is Michaela from the Geology Podcast Network, and today, this episode of Geologic Expeditions of Yore will explore one of the greatest contributors to the theory of plate tectonics to date. I am joined by fellow geologist Gillian. Hello! I am so excited to be able to introduce the topic of this episode, Tanya Atwater. She's the mother of plate tectonics. Tanya Atwater is not only known for her extensive research in the field of plate tectonics, but also for being a trailblazer for the rights of women in science to conduct oceanographic field research. It is in large part thanks to Tanya Atwater that women have the opportunities to conduct fieldwork in geology today. Yeah, I think we both are really grateful for that. It is also thanks to Atwater that we now know so much more about the inner workings of our own planet. Her research was steadily built off of Alfred Wagner and Marie Tharp, both topics of previous episodes of Geologic Expeditions of Yore, and all contribute to the ever-expanding theory of plate tectonics. 
Not only does Atwater continue on with research similar to that of Marie Tharp, but both women faced jarringly similar sexism in the workforce, even decades apart. Each of their advances brought change that neither would see until at least the 1970s, but their passion for their chosen fields of study drove them forward. Much like Marie Tharp, Atwater's love of the earth started young. Atwater was born on August 27, 1942, in Los Angeles, California. She was one of four raised by a botanist, her mother, and an engineer, her father. She frequently talks about her interests in art and earth's processes at a young age, both of which combined later on to culminate in an interest in geophysics. She credits much of her early interest in science to how she was raised by her parents. Atwater said, My ancestors were covered wagon pioneers and seafarers, seeking out adventures and challenges, and my family continued the tradition. Our weekends and vacations were spent camping and hiking and horseback riding and river rafting, often in the wildest, most remote places we could find. Thus, I grew up with a profound love for wilderness and adventure, with lots of practice in both self-reliance and group dynamics. Atwater continued her journey towards geology as an undergraduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She changed her major several times throughout her time at MIT and explains that she actually came into geology completely by accident when she was unintentionally enrolled in a geology course during her third year. She loved it, loved it so much that she transferred right before her final year at MIT to the University of California, Berkeley, and graduated with a BA in geophysics in 1965. That's such a familiar story. I mean, something similar happened to you, right? You started as, as what, a nurse? Well, yeah, I started as a nurse, went into religion and then psychology and gender studies. And then I happened to come into geology in history of life. And it was, it changed, it changed my life. And I'm very happy to continue on this journey. Me too. Yeah. I mean, there are so many of us who find geology by chance and we end up completely changing our intended careers because of it. So Atwater describes geology as a spatial puzzle where one must visualize the geologic structure and geometry, figure out how these shapes are cut by the undulating surface of the present landscape, and then translate all that into lines and symbols on a flat paper map. Um, She goes on to excitedly remark on a revelation that all of us who come into geology soon uncover. We can actually get paid for hiking around the mountains and coaxing out their secrets. I know. It couldn't sound better to me. Atwater then goes on to work at several institutions around the world, gaining practical research experience. She worked at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts as a summer fellow in geophysics. She participated as a research associate in earthquake seismology at the University of Santiago in Chile, and as a second research associate in paleomagnetism at the University of Stanford in California. She went back to school at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, University of California in San Diego, where she earned a PhD in marine geophysics in 1972. So like we mentioned earlier, Atwater was most famous for her research on plate tectonics. She began publishing her own research in 1968 and has continued steadily since then. An initial paper entitled Changes in Direction of Seafloor Spurting, published in 1968, became one of her more famous theoretical advances in plate tectonics. 
In this paper, she and colleague H.W. Menard introduced a theory they called propagating rifts. So for those of you who don't know or need a refresher, a rift is a split between two plates that grows over time as they move away from each other as new crust is created. Another word for a rift between two plates is a spreading center. Atwater and Menard argued that seafloor spreading centers would adjust to plate motion and change direction alongside that plate motion. They postulated that rather than continue on a straight path, the spreading center, or the rift, would propagate so that as the plates shift and move, so do the rifts. This phenomenon actually explains the complex patterns we now observe on the seafloor today. If you've ever seen an image depicting the seafloor or just a world map, you'll notice how intricate the features are, and this is a result of nonlinear plate motion. Atwater explains. We had known for a long time that spreading centers were able to change their trends in response to changes in plate motion direction, but we didn't understand how they accomplished these reorientations. It seems that a rift segment begins to crack and extend itself in the new direction, steadily propagating past other segments and establishing the new trend. Now that we have documented the existence of these features and learned to recognize the patterns they produce, we are finding their traces in many ancient seafloor records all over the globe. Sections of the seafloor that were formed during plate motion changes are full of them. is probably most famous for her research regarding the San Andreas Fault, compiled in a paper published in 1970 entitled Implications of Plate Tectonics for the Cenozoic Tectonic Evolution of Western North America, which became her thesis for her PhD. She essentially took all previous research on tectonics and applied it to the features in Western North America to complete a historical narrative of the San Andreas Fault from before its time until present day. And just a quick refresher, the San Andreas Fault is a series of rifts along the boundaries of four plates located in Western North America. And this fault system that she studied is roughly 1,200 miles. It's, it's massive. And most people know it as the source of the major earthquakes that have occurred in California. So now I'm just going to explain a little bit about why this is such a unique system. So a fault is usually just one split between two pieces of crust that move in specific directions. This particular fault is unusual because it is both a major fault line and a transform border between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. This means that it encompasses more than just the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate to result in more than one type of movement. So the San Andreas Fault involves the Pacific Plate, the North American Plate, the Farallon Plate, and the Juan de Fuca Plate. And over the course of over 40 million years, the complex movements of all of these plates have resulted in two different types of movement, latitudinal movement as well as longitudinal movement, that now make up the San Andreas Fault system. Wow, that history is complicated, and so is the result. And if you're interested in more of the specifics, Atwater has actually created animations that illustrate these movements, and we'll talk more about her work on these animations later. For now, it is just important to realize how complex the system is and that Atwater was able to explain it all with limited research on tectonics available to her at that time. 
She also ended up explaining more than the coastal movements. She took previous works and carried their research and her own on land to describe how the movements off of the California coast have affected the North American Western continental Earth. Her work has then been used to explain how this motion in the ocean has impacted the continental structures through time and how they might change in the future. Atwater goes on to talk about her work on the fault system. I have been talking and waving my arms almost from the start of my geologic career. In the 1960s, marine geology was a very small field, and most schools and research institutions didn't have anyone on their staffs who specialized in this subject. Thus, when word of the revolution spread, we oceanographic graduate students found ourselves in the unusual situation of having a profound story to tell. I gave seminars all over the West to anyone who would listen. It was a heady experience. I love explaining things anyway, and these audiences were rapt. From all of that talking, I soon learned what was easy and what was hard to understand and explain. For example, the relative motions between two plates are easily understood by most people. On the other hand, the relative motions among three or more plates is generally quite difficult to visualize. It is not very intuitive, to say the least. When I wrote about the San Andreas system, I took a lot of care explaining the underlying concepts and ideas. It felt audacious at the time. Who was I, a graduate student, to be tutoring the world? But I've been glad ever since because the San Andreas system is one of the few land geological features that clearly benefits from the quantitative understanding of plate motions. My work is commonly used as a teaching vehicle to introduce students to plate concepts in general. animations we mentioned earlier are the teaching tools she referred to. After working as a professor at MIT, she began a professorship at the University of California, Santa Barbara in 1980. It was there that she started the Education Multimedia Visualization Center. This project was really what enabled her research to be accessible to not only the general public, but to young school-age children as well. She essentially converted her research on the San Andreas Fault to visual educational animations, little time-lapse videos on the different movements involved in the fault system. Atwater also made these videos available as an online source for educators. She said that her vision for these animations is for every school child to be able to look out a window and understand the world. The work of making these complex histories available and comprehensible is a huge feat, and these animations are relied on by educators all over the world, including our own professors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as geology students in Canada, one of the capstone courses we took was the Geology of North America, which of course includes the San Andreas Fault. Um, and we watched and studied the animations that Atwater made in order to understand the system better, and it made a huge difference. And I mean, that's my favorite part of geology is the storytelling aspect. And I remember her animations and that really helped me because there's just so many episodes throughout Earth's history. So it's really hard to imagine it. But when you break it out like she did, it was really helpful. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, so one huge part of Atwater's life that we haven't really talked a lot about yet are her multiple experiences with sexism as a woman in science and how she overcame these restrictions based on sex. 
Throughout her career, she participated in 12 dives to the deep sea floor in a tiny submersible called Alvin, as well as participated in or led numerous oceanographic expeditions in the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. But being a participant or a leader in the initial several expeditions were not givens like they would have been for men with the same education and experience that Atwater had. Atwater was one of the first women who entered the geological field in ocean floor research, and like Marie Tharp, the topic of one of our previous episodes, she was denied positions on ships because she is a woman. You're kidding. Even in the late 1900s? That was only 50 years ago. Why was she denied positions? Well, it comes down to that same sexist superstition that Marie Tharp faced. Women were still considered to be unlucky on board ships. I don't know how that superstition even started. (laughs) Atwater said that she consistently encountered blatant sexism, but she broke ground for women in many ways. In July 1968, she was the first woman chief scientist of a research vessel, and in 1972, she became the first woman faculty member of Scripps. Atwater explains the sexism she faced and how she dealt with it. In those days, there were myriad restrictions, barring women from many activities and especially from field situations. Women were not allowed on many of the ships in the oceanographic fleet. Women on ships are unlucky, don't you know? The early support from my family gave me great strength to stand firm and smile and insist, knowing that I was right, knowing that the rules and restrictions were unjust. I had important work to do, and I needed to do it from a ship. Several anti-discrimination laws and court cases in the 1950s and 1960s also played a crucial role. I never threatened anyone with a lawsuit, but I know that the possibility was mentioned from time to time by my male colleagues to prod various recalcitrant administrations into doing the right thing. Administrations hate lawsuits. When there were administrators who said I couldn't be on a small ship because there wasn't a separate bathroom for women, my mentors would say, well, she could sue you. And suddenly, they discovered they could manage to have a female on board if you locked the door on the bathroom. For a long time, women were not allowed in the submarine, and I needed to go down to the ocean floor. Their main reason was, how's she going to urinate? I was there doing spectacular science, and what they were worried about was that... Of course, there are still vestiges of prejudice, but it has been a great pleasure to me through the decades to watch the numbers and diversity of women grow and flower in the physical sciences. Yeah, and she really fought for herself, and in doing so, has helped open doors and break down barriers for future generations of women. We truly owe a lot to her. Atwater went on to be awarded several honors for her scientific achievements, as well as for her leadership as a woman in science. Notable awards or honors include Scientist of the Year in 1980, the Encouragement Award from the Association of Women Geoscientists in 1984, the Director's Award from the National Science Foundation in 2002 for her educational animations, the Gold Medal from the Society of Women Geographers in 2005, and, most recently, the Penrose Medal of the Geological Society of America in 2019. Tanya Atwater is currently an Emeritus Professor of Tectonics at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as well as the Director of the Education Multimedia Visualization Center, where she continues to inspire and encourage students and educators to continue learning about this incredible planet. 
Atwater said, Beyond practical matters, there is a more fundamental reason that people should learn about the natural world. It's fun and interesting and empowering to learn the reasons that things are the way they are. The shapes and colors and textures of the countryside tell their own stories to the viewer who is geologically aware. The configurations and locations of continents, oceans, mountains, plains, swamps, and deserts all are understandable and somewhat predictable. A basic knowledge of geology can enhance every cross-country trip and can deepen every person's appreciation of the planet and of the backyard. It brings the world map to life. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it is very helpful when you rate and review the podcast. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Editing and music production was done by Michaela Moore. Episodes of the Geology Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts.